I will build you a house. God said to David, I love this story. I love the story of David. I, I was so thankful to just kind of have this show up in the election uh, this past week as I was again at a conference in Fort Wayne and um, thinking about, you know, post Christmas, you know, for me, I'm as a workload, I'm just kind of catching my breath from after Christmas. And then as soon as you catch your breath after Christmas, you got to poke your head up and be like, okay, when's Ash Wednesday? Where's it at? <laughs> it's coming quick, right? So, so why is that? Well, you know, the lectionary is real nice. It tells me what to preach on. And even though once in a while I'm like, we need to talk about something else, you know, it's a really wonderful thing to have a prescription for your discipleship, to not make up your own way, right? But to receive an inheritance from the Christians who have gone before. And, and the, the one year, or as it's, it's true fans, you know, I'm, I'm here pitching it, but I'm, I'm not a fanboy the way some guys are. They call it the historic lectionary. Well, why do they call it that? Because it's been around a long time. It's been around a long time. And Christians who were there with it for a long time found it edifying. In any case, I was so glad it threw David my way because what Lent doesn't have with all the midweek services, that's the place every year. They're like, well, pastor, good luck. Make something up. What do you feel like preaching on, right? And I've done it all over the place. We've done the six chief parts of the catechism since I've been here, right? We've been in the Psalter since I've been here. Well, here we go. We get David for this Lent. Buckle in and please come to the midweek services. David's story is inspiring. It's inspiring because it's about what God can do with just a plain, simple Christian. And of course, all of that is just going to be under what God can do as the one man, Jesus Christ. The power of David is that his God is Jesus Christ. That's what makes David special. When David goes up against Goliath and wins, it's not because he picked the best rocks from the brook or because he'd always known how to throw a spot shot with his sling. I mean, those things may indeed be true, but if those things are true, they're only true because Jesus only gave him that stuff. And then when he goes out there, he doesn't go, here I come with my sling and my sword. Have you read it? I come at you in the name of Jesus Christ, and I will cut off your head and feed it to the birds. He did it. Now, maybe that doesn't inspire you. I don't really want to cut anybody's head off myself. But can I suggest that there's this big, giant beast out there? This huge beast just running roughshod over life? Our country, history, you better believe I want to cut its head off. You better believe Jesus did. And the tongue was nailed beneath his feet to the cross. The devil was silenced once and for all. If you're willing to listen to the son of God speak. If you will not hear the Son of God speak, then the devil will speak plenty in your ears. And if you will fill your ears with the chiming of the devil and not think that that's what it is and continue to fill yourself up with it, well, then you're going to hear what he says. But the fact is that his lies have been silenced because they are now impotent, impotent 
They can't do anything. Let me give you one of the greatest lies the devil tells. It's called scarcity in a word. Or I talked about it last service. If you want to have a conversation at a party with someone, ask, what did pastor mean about zero-sum games? That was weird, right? It's scarcity. The lie of the devil is that there is not enough. All the news right now that's trying to scare you, whatever story, you put it in this one, there is not enough. What, votes? What, environment? What, places for immigrants? What, safe places where there aren't wars? There's not enough. There's a problem. This is going to be scarce. You better go get some for you and hide or else. And that's the devil's story. Jesus' story is, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to start with, again, Jesus, my own body, the body of Jesus Christ. So we'll just, again, begin with this idea that the body of Jesus is different than yours and mine in this way. When he was born, he had no earthly father. And so he was rightly called the incarnation of God. We are different from each other in that way. But that is so that he may make us like him. Not God eternal, but one with God, who is eternal, according to both of his natures, human and divine. I said a lot there. That was a lot. The mystery is profound. The story of David, I think, lets you see what that feels like when you stop trying to have it be a theory about God and you start acting like he actually is for you and you can't lose. That's what David's life is. At every step, he just decides, well, this looks pretty bad, but God is for me, so I can't lose. And then he goes. And door after door after door is opened. Till at a certain point, this young man who had once fled for his life with a small battalion of ragtag men from a very powerful king who pursued him with malice and viciousness has peace on every side. As king, no one dares threaten him anymore. That's where our story is going to pick up. And when God says, I brought you from the sheepfold, right? Think of all the places that he was brought through. All the fights he had to do killed his Thousands and tens of thousands. He was a man of blood. He was an Alexander before there was an Alexander. Like the name of the great ones of the earth and all this, yeah? So he's got that. And he's sitting there at peace. And our text gets in. So if, if you'd like to find your way to 2 Samuel 7 in your Bible, Pew Bible, or otherwise, please feel free. It says, Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord, that's Jesus, had given him rest from all his enemies all around. So that's where I just kind of left off. You know, dwelling in his house. Um, the movement in history from like, I have a house of like stucco mud built into a cliff into like, I have a house like with cedar, right? Um, much of history, most people don't get the chance to build a nice house. At best, like, right, log cabin in the woods. You're on your own. That's most of history. We live in this really weird place where we can buy houses from other people. It's, it's great. I hope it stays for a while, right? But it's, it's different than it was. 
So, so here is David, and, and he's contemplating this. He, he's kind of amazed by the fact that he has built his palace. And he's looking at this amazing palace. He's built out of these huge trees from you know, the northern lands where, the, uh, where he is. He's got uh, trade industry started with, uh, I think it's Hiram, I forget, the, the king there, whatever. The, you know, he's, he's building his entire empire and it's just blessing him. And he looks out at the, at the courts of where he's brought the, the Ark of the Covenant in. Remember, there's the dancing and the shouting and all this stuff. There's the guy who dies. They leave it for a while. Anyway, the, the Ark is there. It's, it's in the city. And he's walking out of his house every day for the morning and the evening sacrifices. And he's looking at his house. And he's looking at what they got for the church. And he's like, you know what? I kind of suck. I'm doing it all for me. And so he does, like, he actually goes to Nathan the prophet, which is pretty cool. Like, he actually goes to a prophet. It's like, so I got an idea, prophet. <laughs> he doesn't just go do it. Beautiful. He, he, uh, he, um, he goes to the council of the Spirit of God, right? And uh, he says, I want to build a house for this box, which has been the key to my warfare and my kingdom. I want to acknowledge my God who made this box is bigger, better, and more important than me. So I want him to have a nicer place than me. This is all very pious. And we should, I kind of knocked Peter in the last sermon. We should see this very much like Peter you know, let me build three tents here. Right. It's very pious. He's not trying to be wrong. Right? And what I love about how God will often use these moments where we're like piously like, well, I'll do this. You know, and God's like, oh yeah, you think so? Well, you'll do that and this. He doesn't always just come along and say, no, not to you. He's like, well, if you said so, sure. <laughs> you think you want it. And then the blessing. Right. And that's exactly what he'll do here for David. All right, so uh, continuing on with the text. Uh, Nathan said to the king, oh, one more thing, back to the word curtains. To understand about this tabernacle, we haven't done a lot here at St. Paul since I've been here on like Exodus and, and Moses. You know, we did a bunch on kings in history. We haven't done a bunch on, on Moses. The tabernacle is, was beautiful. This wasn't a tent like you're going camping in, okay? This thing would have been close to the size of St. Paul as a tent. Uh, woven of, of purple and crimson and gold with uh, high quality beams made out of wood and covered in gold, filled with smoke and incense. It, it was, it, it, we don't have things like this. The ancient world was so different, but it, it was beautiful. But it was also made in a desert, I don't know, 500, 600 years prior. And Honestly, by the time the one's in with David at the city, it may not even be the same one. You know, it really switches around. Uh, Solomon ends up going out to worship at a high place at Gibeon where he gets his vision, right, and of the wisdom. The Ark of the Covenant is not at the high place, but the tabernacle is. So the, the one they're using at Jerusalem isn't the original one. So this weird, what, decay, splitting apart, falling apart of what Moses said, do, 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 even under David, even under Solomon, it never quite gets done. There's always something about the decay of earth working into all of this. With that said then, okay, so he looks at these curtains and he's like, they're beautiful, but they're not. They're not a temple like Dagon has. Uh, think about what the other, other religions of the world, the pyramids or what have you, you know, the great things that men build to their gods. 
And so there's also a little pride here, probably. Yeah? Nathan says to the king, this is pretty cool, go do all that is in your heart for Jesus is with you. And Nathan's like, well, yeah, I know who David is. There doesn't seem to be anything wrong with his plan. There's not anything wrong with his plan, except for that God has a much better idea. A much better idea. So that it happens that night, verse four, the word of the Lord, word of Jesus came to Nathan. How'd that happen? You know, tap on the shoulder, wake up, I'm groggy. You know, how did that happen? Was it a, a storming vision with clouds and fire? We don't know. Uh, in many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. That's Hebrews 1 verse 1. So I suggest that um, trying to pin down how the word of the Lord was to anyone is not worth it. Um, just know this, like this guy was a man of God, unlike any we can imagine, except for perhaps someone who knows his Bible so well that everything he says is effectively a quote from it. If you could find that kind of person today, and I'm sure they're, they're out there. I'm not that good yet. I'd like to be someday. And that kind of person is going to be like talking to Nathan. Like that's the closest that we're going to get. Yeah? And so he says, go and do it. Your heart, David, is a heart after God. That's what God loves about David. David listens. David hears. David believes. So go do it. But it happened that night. The word comes and says, don't do it. Go and tell my servant David, thus says Jesus. Would you build a house for me to dwell in? Now, for this one to sink in, you kind of got to step back and be like in a Job moment a little bit, right? So here you have, you know, little man standing on dirt. And then you have this, you know, in Job's scenario, God shows up as a whirlwind. So imagine the biggest uh, hurricane, tornado, cataclysmic, fiery event you can see in the sky above you. And it's like, so you want to build me a house, you say. That's kind of the idea here. Like, like, like do you, you don't really know what you're saying. I don't dwell in that box quite the way you think. Now, to be sure, you open that box, smoke comes out and stuff, right? But that's not all of God, as if God isn't outside of creation, bigger than creation, beyond our imagination. Triune, three persons in one substance. Again, it's just, it blows your mind at a certain point, and he must. He's God. So are you going to actually build a house for me? And he points out how he never needed it. Verse six, I've not dwelt in a house since I brought you out of Egypt, even to this day, but I, I was in the tabernacle, which this is a little bit like, well, go read Moses. Whose idea is the tabernacle? It's God's. It's God's idea. He says, build it. He doesn't just say, build me a tent. He says, build me a tent like this, this long, this wide, this high, these pieces, all like this. Every detail, he says, do it. So like God wanted to be in a tent, not a building. Why? That's a fun one. I hope we get to that one. That's at the end. Uh, let's keep going though. Uh, Wherever I have moved, he says, with, about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So, so first, I built the tabernacle. Second, did I ever ask for anything different? The judges have been around a long time. There's been some great moments, some great successes, right? Did I ever say this? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Again, this is the whirlwind talking to the little man. I took you from the sheepfold. He was ruddy and good looking. He'd fought a bear or a lion once in his life, but he was just a shepherd. Now, what do we compare that to? He worked at Walmart behind the checker, cashed people out of their local store. It's, it's all he was doing. And God's like, so all this that you see, just so just, you know, I did that. I did that. I took you to be ruler over my people, Israel, to make you king. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and cut off all of your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. I mentioned Alexander Megas the Great earlier and how David precedes Alexander as a name in history by a good long time. David is really like the first of the great men. Because honestly, if I say like Sennacherib, while he was the empire emperor of Assyria, like most people aren't like, oh yeah, okay. But see, David, we still name people David. He's got a name like the great ones of the earth. Uh, what I want us to see here, before we go any further though, uh, if you if you highlight or if you want to make a note um, where he says uh, that whole section, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler. I've been with you where you've gone, cut off your enemies before you, and made you a great name. That entire thing you can you can take that right out of the Bible, write it on a, a card, and just assume it's about you. Just make it one of the promises of the Bible for your life. I'll explain how in just a moment, but, but don't quote me on it or don't question me on it for a second. Just think about it. Take this as about you. This is what God says to you. I have taken you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Now, how can I say that to every single one of you today? I'll tell you, it's because your name is Christian. Your name is Christian. You have a name greater than any of the names of history, baptized onto you, anointing you, making you one with the eternal son of God. So you may know that God is with you wherever you go, that where your enemies have floundered and fallen is because God has fought them, that he takes the path, that from your childhood and your weakness, he has brought you to adulthood and to faith. All of these things are there in that verse for you. You're not different than David. You have a different vocation but you're a Christian. You trust just like he does. And so you get the same promises that he does. Going on, he says, moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to have rest from all your enemies. So again, sometimes, you know, the ancient way of talking, is, it, I don't know if long wind is the right way. It's just kind of, it's a bumpy sentence is what that was. It was a bumpy sentence. So to try to, to, to give the context of it, after the people of Israel enter under Joshua and, and take their portion of the land, they, they basically engage in constant failure. 
They're just always being conquered by others or pressured by others or, or assaulted, like physically, again, with swords and, and, and horses and stuff, right? It's war again and again. And the whole book of the Judges is about that floundering reality, right? So that's been going on up to the point where David now has peace from those enemies, and he's the first one ever to be this at peace in this place. And what he's saying is, so now that's going to stay here. In fact, it's going to stay here forever because, next line, Jesus tells you he will make you a house. I'm going to come back to that again later for us. But how is Jesus going to make David a house when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers? That is, when you die. Can I tangent for a second on this one? How often do you hear someone say, oh, my cousin died. How often do you hear someone say, oh, my cousin passed? How often do you hear someone say, oh, my cousin rested with his fathers? Let me suggest that's the biblical way to talk about what happens when we fall asleep in Christ. Yeah. When your days are fulfilled, you rest with your fathers. When David dies, I will set up your seed. Notice the very um, sexual reality, right? I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So there's this very large promise that there is peace. David will die and his son will take the throne and there will be peace like no one has ever seen before. And what we must see as Christians is that this is about Solomon first. That Solomon does this as perfectly as a mere man could ever do it, which includes his own iniquity and being chastened with a rod of men. Read Ecclesiastes and learn about how hard it was for him when he decided to be a fool for a while. He doesn't suggest you do it too. <laughs> he says, read my book instead. Right. So this is about Solomon and the promise that Solomon is going to build the temple to replace the tabernacle just as David wanted and that this will be proof to all of Judea and all of Israel that God has set Solomon on the throne of David forever. But of course, we're Christians because Solomon is only a mortal fulfillment of this. And Jesus Christ, the son of David, is the final and ultimate immortal fulfillment of this. So that everything that it said about Solomon that he does in part or as a picture, as a type, a wondrous type, a vision fair, we just sang it, as a type, everything he does as a picture, Jesus completes as a fullness. There is, there is no 
limit to what he has done. And then, and then, oh my goodness, what house does Jesus build? Solomon built a temple of such glorious wonder that when Babylon saw it, they conquered the city so they could take the gold. <laughs> They're like, that, we're taking it. <laughs> it was that glorious and beautiful. Uh, Jesus, what temple did he build? As the son of David, it's his body. And we're going we're to come back to that. I keep pushing the tent and the body later in the story. We're going to get to Second Peter, I hope. So we'll come back to that. Uh, but Solomon then, building this glorious temple of old, fulfilling the promise so that we might see, pushing forward, Christ before he came. And I would suggest to you that all of Solomon's life in the Bible will function as either a picture of Christ to you, or again, like in Ecclesiastes, he's like David, where he's like, I'm kind of just like you. And I've gone through it all. And God told me what to be. And so here I wrote it down for you. You should maybe read that. Right? Um, so that, that commitment that Solomon has uh, to being just one of us and writing it. You know, I, I, this is the way I imagine it here. I'm going to speculate a little. But like he prays for wisdom and he's told he's going to get more wisdom than anybody who has ever lived. We have three books by this guy. Maybe four if you count Job. Three, three books by the guy who's the wisest guy who ever lived. I just, I can't for a second believe that they can't be better than we imagine, even if we've imagined they're great. Does that make sense? Like, like if this guy's, if the promise of God is true, he's the wisest guy there ever was, you know, Jesus comes next, he's higher, right? But, but aside from that, like, these three books should be like the most golden, like, eat them, right? What more could you need to know? And then, let me give you this Small piece. So what does Solomon's name mean? It means man of peace. You've, you've heard the word shalom before, right? Shalom is kind of a happy Jewish word about peace, right? It is, it is. Um, shalom, peace be with you. Okay, well, shaloman, shaloman, the peaceful one. So when Proverbs 1, chapter 1 begins, the Proverbs of the peaceful one, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Again, who really is writing this stuff? Well, it's the Holy Spirit of God through these men who, as they are carried along by that spirit. And to see that the gift of Solomon as the son of David here promised in this text is there to point us all the way forward to the real man of peace who we nailed to a cross for the sins of the entire world. Now, and in that then, uh, let's let's go through verses 12 through 16 again, and let's apply them east to Jesus, just to get it clear, all right? So when your days are fulfilled, David dies, you rest with your fathers, I will set your seed, I will set up your seed after you, okay? So just look at the crucifix right there. There is the seed, born of woman, born of David, born of Mary, and indeed set up, right? Set up, lifted high on a cross, who will come from your body. We kind of talked about that. And I will establish his kingdom. He's crowned with thorns. There's a sign put over his head by the power of Caesar. That's the king. The sign says, that's the king. It's right there, plain as day. You just have to believe it or not, I guess, right? That's the king. He shall build a house for my name. That's what he's doing. He's taking the tent into the ground so we can come out of house. 
And in that house, there are many, many rooms. Yeah. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Where is that throne? You know, Daniel 7 and 9, the ascension of Jesus Christ, he approaches the Ancient of Days and sits down. Revelation, the Lamb of God is seated at the throne. He's at the right hand of God right now. Where's the throne? It's invisible, and yet it's not. Because guess what? When I repeat the words of our Lord's institution of this supper in a few moments, then that bread, which right now is just bread, and that wine, which right now is just wine, will be the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And he's perhaps not reclining on the altar in some sort of like laid back way, but it certainly is his throne. He sits upon it. And that's why you bow when you come forward, because the king is on his throne. Now, so his throne will be forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. I mean, that's the transfiguration moment right there, right? Breaks out of heaven. Like God was a father to Solomon, but God is the father, only begotten Jesus Christ. Yeah. I will be his father. He shall be my son. This is the fun one. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. So, well, does that mean... Jesus committed sin? Like if, if Solomon did it and then Jesus has to fulfill it, right? I mean, doesn't it look like if, he, if since when he commits iniquity, I will chasten him? So here, here's the easy. This is so easy. But you have to believe what I'm about to say. Jesus Christ is the greatest sinner that there ever was. He didn't commit a single one. He just took them all. You follow? All right. So... For the iniquity of his sin that he owned by standing in our baptism, he was punished with the rod of men and the blows of the sons of men on the cross. But my mercy shall not depart from him. He is risen. Hallelujah. As I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and Saul's his own interesting little story, I'm more and more convinced he's there for us to believe that there are people who don't believe and that we must simply go on. Um, that's my journey with Saul recently. But again, the mercy promised to Solomon doesn't depart, which is why I believe Solomon repented of his folly. And if you read the Kings, uh, Solomon doesn't do well. It ends pretty poorly the way the story goes. And yet he's buried in the city. You know, he's, he's, he doesn't get like the, the bad King endings. And here it is. My mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul. If this promise is for Solomon, I don't know how that's not true then, right? Yet it is all full forward to the mercy not departing from Jesus. But then see, again, that means the mercy is not going to depart from you. You, who are his beloved son. You, Christian. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Which, I love this. Okay, so like, who are you, right? Are you a man? Guess what? You have a throne. You do. I'm sure you do. It's in your house. You sit in it. We don't call it a throne, but it's a chair and it's your chair, right? I mean, guys who don't have their chair, raise their hand. You need one? You need one. Get a chair. You need your chair. Right? It's a, it, hey, other people can sit in your chair, by the way. They like to. Your chair is usually a nice chair, right? So uh, it's a throne. All men have thrones. It's, it's natural. We need them. We're like, I'm going to build a house and I'll put a chair in it. I'll sit there and then I'll, I'll be, I'm a man now, right? That's, that's like life. It's good. Uh, God, in Jesus Christ, 
now takes that of yours and makes it his. That's his chair. It's his throne. It's his house. You're his person. You're filled with his spirit and you are his people together. So the promise of Jesus to David for Solomon for Jesus is for you. That he will build you a house that he has. And now, do we have time? We do. Let's look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter, uh, chapter 1. We're not going to look at all of it. We're just going to look at this tent language at the start, verses 12 through 15. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. I mean, he's setting up there, I'm writing scripture for you so you can keep it. <laughs> That's really what he's saying, right? Why? Uh, yes, I think it is right. As long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that surely I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Do you remember at the end of the Gospel of John, there's a little bit after Jesus forgives Peter three times where Jesus more or less implies to Peter that Peter will die sooner than Peter wants to. He says, when you're older, people will lead you by your hands where you do not want to go. You remember this? My favorite part. Peter's like, yeah, what about John? <laughs> Does he get it too? Uh, but so he's saying, I know I'm not going to live to a ripe old age and go to rest with my fathers. And so as a result, I'm going to write down what I know for you so you may remember what has been revealed to his eyes are right, right? Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. I mean, I can imagine that to mean he had multiple copies of the letter made right away. Why not, right? What else does he mean? So there's that. That's the meaning of the text. But now that tense language, he talks about his impending rest with his fathers, his impending death as the putting off of the tent. So why did God start with a tent in the desert and end with a building in a city? Hmm? Because when you put off the tent of this body in your death or on the day when it happens like that, what you get in place will be that temple that he has prepared for you, which you again feast on constantly. You're already there. It's just not transfigured yet. If you follow. Nah. It's there by faith. It just can't quite be seen by sight. Knowing that you're a tent, but that you have a house and that God is going to build your house more than just the tent of your body, but the what, the conglomeration, the growth of your body and its seed as you become a people, that's your house, right? Your house isn't a building. Your house is the people who live in the building. Your household, we used to say, right? God says, I will build your house. That's Christianity. He's going to build your house. Now, a little bit of a sales pitch for you then. How does God build your house? He does it by Lutheran word and sacrament, which means regular attendance at church, which you do. 
feasting upon the supper, which you do, being reminded of your baptism, which here you are. There's a lot of time between when I'm going to say goodbye to you and say, how you doing? God's peace to you. And next week when you're coming back in, it's a lot of time. A lot of time to not have food. You want to build your house the way God builds your house. You want God to build your house. Then the word of God must be in your life throughout the week. If I were to pinpoint the collapse of churches in America on any one factor, it's complex. Any one factor, I'd still have to pick two. I'd have to pick two. They go together. Birth control. Birth control has brought about the collapse of American Christianity by numbers alone. It's unavoidable. It's science. Birth control. Those of us who stayed or were born, no biblical knowledge. No biblical knowledge. That's it. God wants to build your house, not control it and stop it from coming. God wants to build your house with his holy word that endures beyond all things. And that's why at the front of the Daughters of Wisdom prayer packet, where we encourage women to pray a series of Psalms and Proverbs every day together across the world, the same words to unite your hearts, to unite your minds, and to ask God for the same thing. The thing it says right on the front under Daughters of Wisdom is build your house. How? Open it. Read it out loud every day. That's it. Boom. Watch God work. Guys, we got yours here. It says, there are not enough good men. Become one. It's good stuff, these packets. Anyone who gets into them knows it. They'll tell you about it. I want to focus on the promise to close here. Discipline and discipleship are important. When God builds your house, he doesn't do it while you lie on the ground drooling. He inspires you to stand up and do something about your house. Hmm? That inspiration, inspiring, spirit going in, is accomplished by the inerrant, that is, without errors, no mistakes, word of God. You are here today because you believe it, and I am here today to encourage you to keep on believing it and do more. Not because you have to do more, but because why wouldn't you want to? The more that the rest of it keeps falling down, the more this stuff's just going to stand stronger. So I know you know in your home and in your life where you've put the word of God into practice, you've seen peace reign. You've seen growth come. You've seen sanctification, in fact, happen in yourself. So why would you doubt that's ever going to stop? Jesus Christ is going to build your house because your name is Christian. In the name of Jesus.